This is a production of the Pardes Institute of Jewish Studies. For more original Torah content, visit elmad.pardes.org. All right, first, as always, I want to thank the Pardes Institute, that's P-A-R-D-E-S dot org dot I-L, for giving me the chance to speak with you today. Um, so this is the first class of, God willing, a successful series. So I want to start um, with a bit of an introduction. Uh, and I have to say, it's not going to be a full introduction, because we did spend one of the classes during Elul, um, with me raining down upon some of you who are sitting here now, uh, some of the fundamental concepts of my approach to Jewish history. So I'm not going to do the full bore, but first and foremost, I'm Mike Foyer. I'm a teacher here at Pardes, as Alex mentioned, during the year program here in Community Ed, also in the summer in lots of capacities. Uh, I would encourage people also, as long as we're just doing all the plugs, let's get them out there out front. Um, Pardes has a wonderful digital platform. You may have noticed this thing that I've just attached to and I was talking to before. Um, they, all these classes are going to be recorded, God willing, unless I fail or I run out of batteries, which also happens. Um, but so those of you who, who have a tendency to drop in or drop out or aren't sure you know, whether this is where you want to be in this time slot, keep your eye out on Elmod, that's Pardes' uh, digital platform, and God willing, the whole series will be up there. Okay, great, that's by way of the introduction of who am I and, and where are you. This is the Jewish story. And when I chose to call my class on Jewish history the Jewish story, I did it because there is no word in the Hebrew language for history. And as we spent a lot of time speaking about in previous classes in Elul and other times, that, that history is a, a particular construct, which is a product of Western culture, which for our purposes, I'm going to put on the side of the board of critical, objective, fact-based relationship. Right? That sounds really nice, and if there are any scientists in the room, it might be comforting. Um, but if there are any historians in the room, you know that it's, a, it's the primary mythology of history that you can achieve objectivity. Right? The myth on which all historians live is that you can achieve objectivity. And I say it that way deliberately because myth to me is actually the highest form of communication. We'll get there eventually, don't worry. Um, so on the other side of the spectrum, um, you have traditional narrative Especially amongst Am Yisrael, I'm not going to go into other cultures because it's not really our concern, but especially amongst Am Yisrael, we are a people that has been telling our story arguably longer in continuity than any other people still alive today. Right? And because of that, our story has a particular character. Right? Just imagine, I mean, I'm sure, anybody here have a friend that you're still close with after more than 30 years? So great, so, then, so you're familiar with the phenomenon that you've been having the same conversations for decades. And I don't mean this because you don't remember what you talked about last week. What I mean is because there, there are certain elements of conversation which become foundational to relationship, which you return to deepen, use as building blocks for a higher level conversation. It's not just simply do you remember when in a factual sense. It's a way of communicating. It's a way of being, in fact. Right? And stories have a capacity for holding a way of communicating and a way of being which a factual approach to lying out what happened when doesn't actually offer. So what I'm going to do, and what I've been doing now for this point for about 10 years in this project called The Jewish Story, um, is attempt a, a fusion. On one hand, I'm committed to the integrity of the historical process. Meaning, I do believe in facts. They may be elusive. They might come out as fake news periodically. And there might be awful, awful uh, sort of large arguments about them. But I, I believe in the integrity of the, the discipline of history, 
And, and I believe if you work hard enough, you may not get to the absolute truth, but you know a lot more than when you started. Right? So that is one piece that this class will offer. On the other hand, um, I'm deeply committed personally, and I would even say uh, theologically, to the Jewish story and to the narrative of the story that we, the Jews, have been telling since we came to the awareness that we had a story at all. Because, of course, that story is not about the past. You know what it's about? It's about the future. Right? And, and so, therefore, that's why my personal tagline is learning to tell a story of the past, which can build a people in the present oriented toward the future that we actually want to live. There's a funny way that telling a story of the past dictates your future. Anybody ever read the Art Scroll history books here? Not that crowd, yes? Yes, and nobody wants to admit it? Well, you never know. I have to love them. I think they're excellent books. They're great resources, particularly in the internal Jewish narrative. But I like, what? Well, I like to call them a history as it should have been. And as long as you read it that way, you're getting a very honest look at what it was. Right? And bias is, by the way, you, there's no such thing as a historian who's not biased, except the one who won't admit it. Those are the ones you should be aware of. And, and actually, the current definition in the academy of objectivity is a person who is able to place their biases clearly on the table as they are doing work. Meaning, self-awareness at this point in the postmodern era is the only definition of objectivity. Since we all have our biases, we all come from our cultural norms, we have our linguistic limitations, added in whatever you want. The only way, there's no such thing as unbiased, there's only honest. And honest means I can hold my biases right in front of me while I tell you what I believe. It's the people who deny that they have biases or keep them well out of, out of sight, those are the ones you should be nervous of. So the Art Scroll books is an excellent example of uh, a segment of Am Yisrael who has a very clear vision of what they want the future to look like. And consciously or not, I actually tend to think it's not conscious, they're telling you a story of the past which they believe will help people in the present orient themselves toward that future. Well, I got news for you. The new historians, if you're familiar with them here in the state of Israel, those who cut their teeth, as it were, on the archives of the 1948 war, who have been systematically undermining all of the national mythology of moral righteousness, of black and white enemy versus you know, uh, victim, all these things which are pillars of not so much, but still significantly of modern Israeli identity, they, they also have a future that they envision, which their historical work is in service of. Some of them have become political activists, in which case, again, at least they're honest about it. So I'm not denying that. I'll let you try to figure out what my agenda is. If you can't tell, just ask me. Um, but for now, that I, I do believe that um, a, some degree of personal full disclosure is necessary, but that's not, this class is not about me, at least explicitly, so therefore I, I don't want to go too far into that. Um, anything else I do want to get on the board? So it's critical you know that that's what I'm bringing. I've done a lot of work in the historical sources, not the primary sources, that's not really my, um, my forte. I spend most of my time in secondary sources, other people. Since I'm teaching a class that goes from the Book of Daniel all the way through the rise of the modern state, I don't really think three lifetimes would be enough to do the primary sources. Um, and, and the other side is I have a very particular idea of where it is that we as people have come from and where it is we're trying to go. Um, and that's also part of my work here at Pardes and in other places. If people are curious, we can speak about it at another time. So that being said, this section of the class I think was advertised as from the Mishnah to the Gaonim, if I'm not mistaken. So looking at the calendar, I think depending on the level of um, depth and interest that we encounter, we might even get a little bit further. Um, however, I think it's better not to start with the Mishnah right away, since there are a number of people sitting here who were in the class last year. The reason that I said the Mishnah is that's where we more or less left off. 
um, and we are trying to make some sense of continuity. But in order to understand where we are, I think we need to take a little bit of a step back. So today, God willing, we'll encounter the Mishnah today. We're not going to pick up at the Mishnah and move forward. Before I get started, um, questions, comments? Well, hopefully I've developed the habit of repeating your question back, but it always helps. Anything else? All right, then let's get underway. So, you know, there's, there's a, two competing schools of historiography. Historiography is a fun word. If you don't know what it means, it's very simply how you tell the story of history. Right? Remember that history, even for the historians, is more than accumulation of facts. Because at some level I have to decide which facts matter. Right? And not only do I have to decide which facts matter, I mean, the fact that you know, some guy is you know, selling ice cream out on the corner at 2 in the afternoon today is not a, not a uh, moment of history. If it happens to be, God forbid, that you know, his ice cream truck is blown up in a terrorist act, that also might not be a moment of history. It happens to be that that terrorist act causes the state of Israel finally to reach the tipping point where it sends its ground forces into Gaza. Suddenly, this ice cream guy is a moment in history. So you have to decide which facts matter, and as you already noticed in the way I presented it, then you have to put them into a narrative, right? So historiography, the way you tell the story of history, is the way that even historians embrace the reality of a need for a narrative frame for a way you tell the story. So there's two competing historiographies that deal with the period um, that we're in, which um, is the end of the Second Temple period. Right? I have a, just a couple of numbers up here. I don't have a source book for this section of the class, but I may bring you guys a timeline just so you can have something in your hands and feel anchored. Um, and I'll give you my email at the end of the class, so if people have questions or comments, uh, I'm more than happy to take them. Um, my rule is you can always ask and I can always ignore it. Um, no, seriously, otherwise, trust me, I would never do anything but answer email. Um, but I try my best with, uh, with Honest to God, certainly to be helpful, but also informational questions. I do my best. Um, the two competing historiographies revolve around the destruction of the Second Temple. By whom? In the year 70? The Romans, right? Although we're going to have to touch on that. And the, the redaction, meaning the final editing of the Mishnah, which we're going to put, just for round numbers, between 200 and, and 220 of the Common Era. Mishnah, we're going to say complete in quotes, and we'll talk about why there's quotes there in a big way. Um, now, there's a 100 and, you know, 130, 150 year division here. Who do you think the competition is between? Who says that an era of Jewish history ended with the destruction of the Second Temple? And who says that an era of Jewish history ended <coughs> with the writing of the Mishnah? Oh, it's a very important context for the discussion we're going to have for this entire class, really, is that, is that Christianity is in many ways, the, uh, without pejorative, the shadow side of the discussion of this period of Jewish history. Right? Remembering that Jesus of Nazareth dies what year? Or what year was he born? Zero. Come on, guys. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, we're going to get into it, right? Minus four. Is that like, uh, it was a joke. So, but the, his, his death is bound up with the, say, last decades of the, the Second Temple era. Therefore, his death, of course, is the birth of Christianity, although, as we will discuss, really, Christianity doesn't come into its own until about this period in time. And even there, it's going to be, a, as we'll see, 
quite a bit of uh, back and forth, right? But therefore, the Christians have an incentive to make a very clean break. It's, and it's not just for the neatness of counting years. Why else is it that Christian historiography would want to see an end of a Jewish era with the destruction of the Second Temple? Meaning what? Replacement theory meaning what? Excellent. Excellent. Not just an end of a Jewish era. It's an end of the Jewish era. Right? It's important to remember that, that, that the Jews, Judeans, right, Jew at this point in history is by and large a geographic marker, even though it has begun to shift already. Right? You are a Jew because you're from Judea, even though there are plenty of Jews who have never actually lived there, so it's already fuzzy. But their, their status is being held in place by the Roman Empire, because that's the overarching socio-political context that we're in and will stay in for a few centuries. Right? Within that socio-political context, Jews are from Judea, we have an internal discourse between Jews about what does it mean to be a Jew? Something's never changed, right? right? But this particular discourse is explosive. Right? And whether you believe Jesus of Nazareth is a figment of creative literary imagination, or whether you believe he walked the earth and did the things the Christian Bible says, is irrelevant. Because what will happen over time is that one group of Jews will go one way on that, and the other one will go the other. And the ones that go one way we call Jews. And the other ones will eventually be called Christians. And it's very important to the Christians that they become Israel. Early Christianity subscribes, not universally, but, but enough that we can paint it with a broad stroke to say, to, to replacement theology, that God indeed had a covenant with the Jewish people in the flesh, that God rejected them, either because it was preordained or because we blew it. That's its own sort of like discourse within Christianity. But either way, rejected Israel in the flesh and adopted Israel in the spirit, a new covenant. Right? And that Israel in the spirit is a universal church which is founded arguably by actually by Paul, if not by Peter, right? And we're not going to talk about that era of Christianity right now. But there's a very neat boxing of Jewish history into the destruction of the Second Temple, right? That's it. Jews are done. And then, by the way, the expectation was that they would fade. And as we'll see, the fact that the Jews don't go away is deeply problematic to Christianity, and we will talk about what types of um, solutions, methods, and other things that they will employ to deal with that problem. The Jewish problem, in many ways, begins here. Something which is more well-known in sort of the Zionist era in modern Europe, the Jewish question or the Jewish problem. Right? On my podcast right now, I was just writing about the Holocaust. That's why I'm feeling so cheery. Um, the actually begins, in many ways, here with the process of the disembodiment of Ju Judeans into Jews and the real creation of a religion out of what was a religion, nation, peoplehood. Like all those elements were there. But as you strip away the physical containers, what's left standing, well, what was left standing after the destruction of Jerusalem? Who was last man standing, so to speak, amongst the Jews? What's the famous story? Yochanan. Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai, who when he's faced with the imminent destruction of Jerusalem by the emperor Vespasian, who was not yet emperor, right? He asks that he save the sages at Yavne. Right? And we spent a lot of time last semester talking about that. I don't want to go into the story. But nevertheless, what happens is that rabbinic Judaism begins as a saving <coughs> remnant. It's a, that phrase is a very important phrase, a biblical phrase. right? But that phrase is a very important phrase in the Jewish story. Because as we'll see, we've never been a people of numbers. Right? Demogra Jewish demographics is like 
people like obsess about these things today. And it's not new, but I'm telling you now, with all due respect to numbers, it doesn't seem to be the way our history plays out. We, we're a people of commitment. Numbers come, numbers go. But as long as you have a saving remnant, which is committed to the mission, however you want to define the mission, right, then it tends to carry through. And so Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai saw in his companions, the sages as we know them now, that saving remnant, they escaped Jerusalem, or perhaps they had already been out of Jerusalem. Either way, they are not swept away in the destruction. And now you can probably guess, for whom does an era in Jewish history end with the codification of the Mishnah? The sages of the rabbinic Judaism. It's not that they don't recognize the destruction of the temple as a massive disruption or a real shift in history, but really the age of Torah and its codification comes to an end with the era of the Mishnah. And what I want to do today, and, and perhaps even a bit of next week, is understand the context within which this happens. So the first piece is that destruction is fresh. Right? For those of us who still live in the shadow of the Holocaust, it's probably easier for us than, than many generations previous, except for those in the immediate aftermath of the destruction of Spain, to imagine like what, what was the depth of the struggle that this leadership was left with? Like, how do you go on when all you know is a world which centers around the Torah? And when half the people you know are dead, half the ones that are alive are in slavery, and half the ones that aren't are non-functional because of the trauma of the other two-thirds. This may sound familiar, right? So I want to add some elements into the flow of time. One of the most powerful tools that the Roman Empire used in, to control the world in general um, was money. Again, some things never change in history, right? Um, and in particular, uh, tax. Let's remember that um, taxation in the Roman Empire was not like taxation today. Right? Say everybody loves their taxes, right? And then nobody did. I was just checking if people were listening. Um, <laughs> um, you know, there's an important distinction, and it's, it's, it's critical to understanding the role that the Mishnah plays in world culture. And, and so I'll make it this way. There was once upon a time conquest, Right? That's the law of the jungle. Right? What do you do to your enemy? You, you kill every male, take the women and cattle. Right? At a certain point, you reach tribute, which is, it's not really worth killing all the men. How about we just beat them into submission and make them farm their fields and pay us? Right? Then you get to the level of taxation, which is not going to beat you anymore. It's the threat of force. I may have beaten you once at a certain point, now I'm going to let you run your own affairs as long as you pay up. Right? You know what comes after taxation? Advertising. No, I'm not joking. You know who has the real economic power in our world today? It's not governments. It's multinational corporations, Google amongst them. Right? So, 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 so just be aware who's making decisions about how resources flow and what you get in return. Because the difference between tax and tribute is that by, in taxation, there's an explicit contract between the governed and the government, that you cough up your money in return, what do you get? Services. Services. No, so you should understand that the Roman Empire almost worked that way. It almost worked that way, is that it was in the transition between tribute and taxation, that, that by and large, Rome functioned on a culture of honor, that a, a, a consul, someone who was in charge of, say, you know, Palestina, which we'll speak about when that name comes into being, Judea for our purposes now, he had the right to reap whatever rewards economically that he wanted to. It was more or less an absolute power, answerable nominally to the Senate. But since most of the consuls at this point were direct appointees of the emperor, the Senate was gradually but very quickly moving out of any significance. Um, 
But in return, he was expected to expend huge amounts of money building roads, improving water systems, you know, maintaining the legions, which was, of course, in his own personal interest. And so the idea was he collected, not so much by free will, and he shelled out. And you'll see that the history of Rome can be marked by the success and then progressive deterioration of that system to the point where around about, as we'll speak about it, you know, the third century, maybe the fourth, that Romans have to actually chain everybody to their post because it becomes increasingly expensive to hold high office and far less lucrative, right? And so the whole system begins to fall apart as an ever-decreasing layer of society scrabbles for an ever-decreasing pile of wealth. That also might sound familiar. Um, just beware. When these things begin to repeat themselves in history, they, they deserve attention. So for our purposes, that when, when the temple is destroyed and the Romans defeat the Jews, in their minds they've defeated us, they coin a coin which is called Judea capta. People may have seen pictures of it, right? Right? Judea has been captured, and they create what's known as the Fiscus Judaicus or Judaicus. It was a tax imposed by Vespasian on all the Jews throughout the empire, not just on those who had taken part in the revolt. And this is more than just a factoid, because this is the beginning of the creation of the international Jew. Right? Judaism as a religion meaning a one-to-one -one relationship between the beliefs, behaviors, and practices, which the sages in particular will identify as Judaism, and a personal identity does not yet exist. You could be a Judean because you live in Judea. You could be a Judean because you live in the Hispania, the far-flung province of the Roman Empire, but you send your half-shekel tax back to the temple. Right? That half-shekel is used for what? Sacrifices. You're participating in the national service. Literally. And so, so long as you do that, you have a sense of national identity. It's a bit of an anachronism in terminology, but apt nonetheless. What Vespasian does is he transforms that temple tax into a source of shame and identification. Because where does that tax now go? Well, it's going to maintain a Roman temple in, uh, to Jupiter in Rome. And as we'll see with Hadrian later, it gets even worse. So... Vespasian dies as emperor, his son Titus becomes emperor, the tax remains. Now, this is important because it's a way in which Jews are beginning to identify even though the boundaries of geography have already begun to peel away. Right? Time goes on. Titus' brother Domitian takes the throne after Titus. He expands the tax not only to include Jews and converts to Judaism, at this point, despite the modern stance of Judaism, there was still a significant push toward conversion, something which was subsumed into the wave of Christianity, which is about to come. But it, there was a significant part of rabbinic Judaism that saw conversion of the Roman Empire as a, a positive benefit, if not an active goal. Um, something, or well, We'll talk about that when we talk about the early Christianity. Um, but what's interesting is that Domitian actually expands it, not only to born Jews or converts, but also those who had concealed the fact that they were Jews or observed Jewish customs. Meaning what? Now, it's the power structure that decides your identity. And the way it comes into, into expression is through taxation. It's becoming a liability to be a Jew. This would become one of the major drivers for the sort of um, will of Christianity to begin to identify itself as a separate religion. 
You understand what I'm saying? It becomes a tax liability to even practice as a Jew, though you are claiming to be something else. So what needs to happen now is you have to find a professing outward manner in which you can declare, I am not a Jew. Well, that's all well and good. I mean, there are plenty of people who declare they are Jews, aren't Jews. How are the Romans going to know the difference? Well, it's very easy. Would you like this BLT? Or, really, drop your pants, please. Right? Meaning, I mean, there are practices. This is one of the things that marks Judaism as a unique phenomenon in late antiquity. There are very specific covenantal behaviors which define a Jew. That if you claim you're a Jew and you don't do them, okay, people claim things all the time. You understand how this works now? Is that the government has an incentive to identify who is a Jew. And many Jews will have a disincentive to be that. And until Domitian decides to basically use the tools of persecution to root out anyone who isn't willing to step up and say, I'm a Jew, so then they go, if you're proud enough to be a Jew, you want to pay your tax, fine. You want to evade your taxes, everybody's evading taxes. But now, Domitian's also known in Christian history as the great persecutor of the Christians. Like all the stories of the Christians being thrown to the lions, those are from the time of Domitian. It wasn't only him, but he's the one who was, who was famous for it. He was like a very fervent pagan. One of, the, one of the sort of last really sort of fervent pagans to hold the, uh, I mean, Justinian came much later. But um, so for our purposes, Domitian is Domitian's son, brother of Titus. We're right here. Domitian. Yeah. Vespasian was the father. Titus was the son that we're familiar with because he burned the temple. Titus's brother was Domitian. Domitian is known in history as perhaps one of the cruelest and most effective emperors of the Roman Empire. So therefore, if you ask the Roman historians, he was one of the good emperors. You ask the Christians, he was one that threw us to the lions. You ask the Jews, most of them have no idea who he was. Um, so, so um, okay. So, I mean, he expelled the philosophers from Rome. That's actually what he's best known for in Roman history. That's how sort of anti-every sort of uh, non-core pagan practice he was. Um, so, as I said, this is the beginning of a, of a um, split with Christianity. In the larger arc of the story, which most of which happened last semester, it's also, in many ways, the end of the process, which is worth laying out, I think, in, in its broad strokes, of the conversion of Judaism. What do I mean? Who was the original first convert? Famously, according to the sages. Okay, convert to an existing Jewish people. You're going to be difficult. I'm watching this guy. Right, um, I can tell you that. <laughs> oh, you guys came together? Um, Ruth. Ruth is the famous convert. Work with me, people. Right? Sometimes just, when I loft it up there, just, just hit it out of the park for me, will you? Um, it helps the flow of the class. Now, so, so Ruth is seen by the sages as a convert because what? What does she say to Naomi? Well, first, what does she say? I will go where you go. Your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. Now, there's a very important, I think unintended, but very important sequence in her words. I will go where you go. If you look in the Bible, right, Israel is a place. The Israelites are from there. Even though, granted, they came from somewhere else and came in. It's a discussion for another time. Um, Nevertheless, there's a geographic definition of nationhood, which is why it, the idea of intermarriage is not an issue within 
within the Hebrew Bible. Right? It seems to me, nor is the whole question of matrilineal or patrilineal descent an explicit discussion in the Hebrew Bible. It seems to me, in a simple reading, that the, the, the ancient Israelite culture dealt with the issue of intermarriage and, and, um, and patrilineal, matrilineal descent the same way modern Islam does. That when a woman marries a Muslim man, she becomes a Muslim through the process of marriage. Which means, by definition, any Muslim man, the children are always Muslims. Right? That's, again, I don't know enough about Islam to know if there's an argument about that. But that is the sort of standard approach. And you can see how, in a geographically concentrated area, it's a very neat solution to all these problems that we're having today. Right? What happens with the destruction of the first temple is the geographic marker gets loosened up. I mean, now you have all these li Jews living in Babel. And for our story that we've been telling some of us here for quite some time, remember, those Jews are still out there in Babel. They're like out there on the edge of our story. The camera, as we said, after the destruction of the first temple, came right back to Jerusalem, even though the minority of Jews came back. And what's the focus in the book of Ezra on identity? Anybody here ever spend a lot of time with the book of Ezra? What's the locus of identity? There's a fancy term for you in Ezra. So it's very important, this purity of lineage, genealogy becomes critical in the book of Ezra, and it finds its expression in the divorce, and the, also in the lists. And you look in Ezra, they're like, like all these lists of like who came and whether they know their family background, etc. Ezra himself offers you a 19-generation history between he himself and Aaron of Cohen, even though, of course, the author of the book of Ezra knew you could do the math and would realize that 19 generations is not enough to get from Aaron to Ezra. Nevertheless, he would, all, he would expect that we'd all be duly impressed by anyone who knew 19 generations of their family which I am impressed, right? So that genealogy is the beginnings of what we would today call a sort of a racial national identity. But even that didn't quite stick in the Second Temple time because religion was on the rise. You can convert to Judaism. How do you convert to a nation? Today we call it naturalizing, right? But then you have all these debates. What's happening in America today? Who's a real American, right? Making America great again means making it what it once was, or making it some image of what you think now it should have been, right? It's a, it's a very complicated thing. And the other way to say this is, when did the Jews of America become white? Right? When did the Irish become white? When did the Germans become white? You know, each successive wave of immigrants into America it started out as foreigners, became natives, and many of them turned around and wanted to shut the door behind them, right? So, so that model of identity is a tough model. What eventually emerges, which is what we have today, is that anyone can be a Jew, as long as they swear allegiance to God and the Torah. I mean, it's a little bit more complicated than that, right? But notice what you've done. You've completely abstracted what it means to be. It doesn't matter where you live. It doesn't matter what your genealogical background is. Just the whole sort of debate of whether a convert can say the phrase, Elokeinu velokeinu right? God and God of our fathers. And the answer to that is what? Yes. The answer is definitively yes. Why? Because conversion is, you're a Jew, as much as anybody was born has been had 19 generations of a, okay, we can get all the modern debates about who gets to hold the keys to conversion, which is an important discussion, right? But nevertheless, leaving that aside, the, that is a product in its final form of this era. The temple's gone. Nobody's paying their tax to the temple anymore. You're paying your tax to Jupiter, you know? The national boundaries are not completely gone, but they will be soon. Sorry, they'll be soon. Right? All that's left is the Torah. And, and the Torah is something that you can decide that you want to join. 
And so this process of the fiscus Judaicus is actually central because it begins rooting out people, as Domitian did, are you practicing the Torah? Then you're a Jew. That's what a Jew is. It's not, you understand? It's not, not long away from that to say, then that's what a Jew is. And then the Christians, of course, saying, yeah, 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 that's what a Jew is, because I'm not that. And then once the last remnants of a concentrated national life within Judea are gone, that's it. It's just a matter of time before you, you stop somebody on the street in Rome in the year 80, you say, where are you from? They say, Judea. Oh, you're a Judean. You stop someone on the street in the year 150 in Rome, you say, where are you from? They say, Judea. You know what they're going to answer you? Never heard of it. Where's that? And we'll talk about why it is, how Judea just disappears from the map. And so therefore, what happens is you become a Jew. Why are you a Jew? It's not because of where you're from. It's because of what you do. That's going to be from the very important part of our story. Those of you who are familiar with the Mishnah should already sense why the Mishnah plays such an important role in this. Because the Mishnah is not about where you're from. What's the Mishnah about? What you do. Okay. So, in 96, Nerva, who is actually not from the, uh, the family of Vespasian, takes over as emperor, and he lightens the Jewish tax. Um, in fact, he strikes a coin that says, Fisca Judaica calumnia sublata. That's a fun phrase for removal of the wrongful accusation of the Fiscus Judaicus. Why were they striking these coins, by the way, just out of curiosity? Because that's how you spread public news. Nothing travels faster through an economic empire than coinage. Now, you imagine you're, you're in some stall in, in Hispania, and you go to buy some, I don't know, animal skins, and they give you back change. They say, oh, look, we conquered Judea. Who knew? How would you know? Right? And, and, and so therefore, when Nerva stamps this coin, it represents a shift, not just in personally, he's trying to make a shift of the status of the Jews in the empire as a whole. And that's why I'm mentioning to it. And, and, and there for, is a brief period in here where it looked like we could actually sort of resolve our relationship with the Romans. Right? Unfortunately, it, it maintained its brevity. Right? Um, and you should know, by the way, it was never actually formally revoked. Um, and, and it continues to, sh- to show up for extended given time, did I write down the last appearance? Ah, here it is. It was revived in the Middle Ages in 1342 by the Holy Roman Empires, emperors. Um, you know, so just, just as a, a point of interest that certain things don't go away, and we're going to see that matters. Okay. There are three Roman wars that go into the creation of the culture that wrote the Mishnah. And, and we spoke about them in, at length last semester, but this is important information. So the first one most people are familiar with, the Great Revolt. The, the third one many people are familiar with, we'll speak about it in a moment, the Bar Kokhba Revolt. The one that's far less known is what's known as the Quitos War or Merit HaTzkutzot, the, the, exile, uh, the Diaspora War. Um, it was a vicious, bloody battle which had to do with a very important turning point in the Roman Empire. So, what? Right, so, you know, Rome was built on a world of ever-expanding markets. The assumption was as long as the edge of the empire expands, then this whole model of, of tribute, taxation, flow toward the center at Rome, send the consul out to spend their money on the edge of things and build would work perfectly well. The problem is, is when you realize that you don't have an ever-expanding market, that whole economic system collapses. We're just going to keep hitting that sound familiar thing over and over again in the Roman story. Um, and so in year 115, the emperor Trajan makes the last <laughs> gasp for the final frontier of the Roman Empire. 
That is, to the east of the Roman Empire lies the Parthian Empire. Right? The Parthians are the, the current sort of uh, embodiment iteration of the Persian Empire. Right? The Persian Empire and the West, as represented by Rome, Britain, America, has always been the edge of power. Just remember that when you're reading the news. Right? And, and, of course, what has always sat on the fault line between East and West in that respect? The province of Judea, or Palestine, or whatever you want to call it in its day, right? Meaning, it, it, it is noteworthy in history that, that we are sitting here on a fragment line between ancient empires that just keeps emerging as a critical fault between two very different ways of life, whichever side you want to choose. So in 115, Trajan decides to go for it. I'm not going to give you the details of how it's always the Armenians' fault, but apparently it is, according to the Roman historians. But um, and in, in, at first, he's quite successful. He manages to push deep into what we today call Iraq, and it was then known as Mesopotamia, um, made some significant conquests. However, what did he leave behind him? What was his major staging ground? Inevitably, what province? Judea. Well, so it, depending on who you ask, the revolt was either sparked by the Jews in Mesopotamia that he was conquering, who were not interested in being under Roman rule. They saw what was happening to their co-religionists. Or it was the smoldering ashes or smoldering embers of the Great Revolt, which weren't over yet, and people saw an opportunity with Roman, Rome overextended to the east. However you want to describe it, revolt erupts. And it's a revolt which is marked, I think I have a great quote for you here, um, by uh, phenomenal brutality. Right? He, here it is. Cassius Dio, he's a Roman historian from the second century, so he's writing, looking back about, say, 50, 100 years, but he records the behavior of the Jews like this. They would cook the flesh of their enemies, make belts for themselves of their entrails, anoint themselves with their blood, and wear their skin for clothing. Many they sawed in two from head downwards. Remember, this is what the Jews is doing to, are there, to their enemies. For this reason, no Jew may set foot in that land, being a uh, Cyrene, which is a North African um, Roman province. But even if one of them is driven upon the island, Cyprus, by force of the wind, he's put to death. Ooh. Cassius Deo is our only historical record of, of the Quitos War. There is a mention of the Gemara. People are familiar with what are known as the Horge Malchut of Lod, which, who appear in a couple stories in the Gemara. Right? It's a reference to the second phase of the Quitos War, when the leaders of the revolt were basically cornered in, in modern-day well, the ancestor of modern-day Lud, right? Um, but what matters for our story is the taste that the Quito, and it was, according to Cassius Deo, hundreds of thousands were killed. That North, northern Roman provinces in Africa, North Africa, were depopulated to the point where the Romans had to recolonize. That, the, that, that Cyprus, which was a thriving Roman province, was decimated, right? And that, that it was the Jews who waged a bloodthirsty an uncompromising war on every Greek speaker in particular that they could find, which is a very old conflict in this, in this region between the Greek speakers and, and the speakers of Aramaic or Hebrew. Now, there's no way we can confirm or deny Cassius Dio's reports. Um, but one thing is clear. First of all, he wrote them after the Third Revolt, which is to come. And that itself tells us really what we need to take away from this, is that the Jews are becoming the indigestible element of the Roman Empire. Right? Not one, not two, three Roman-Jewish wars. Right? And we're going to see in a few minutes what Rome decides to do after 
the third. But I want you to hear this, what amounts to blood libel accusations, unless, of course, they're true. Um, the, I want you to hear that in light of the fact that the rest of the Roman Empire at this point was in the midst of what's known as the Pax Romana. Right? What was the Pax? What does it literally mean? Roman, Roman peace. What was the Roman peace? Submission. Submission. Listen, it's better to pay your taxes and have roads than it is to have the legions pillage your villages unless you're from Judea. Because apparently in Judea, it's better that we should take a chance that the legions will pillage our villages than it is to pay a tax to a temple to Jupiter in Rome. Right? And that equation will brand itself into the consciousness of the empire. The Jew becomes the politically indigestible element. And, of course, who inherits the Roman Empire? The church. And the church will transmute that from the indigestible element into the obstinate refuser of salvation. By the way, if you just want to hear the whole story, in modernity, when the only thing the Jew is asked to do in order to receive full citizenship into modern Europe is to abandon their culture, there's going to be a bunch of Jews who will refuse to do that, and then they just become the alien other. It's a familiar pattern from indigestible element to obstinate refuser to alien other. And now, pariah amongst the nations. It's a question that Jews need to answer and the world needs to answer as well. Why is it that we can't seem to get along? Right? This is something that we labeled last semester, at least at this phase of our story, as the spirit of the Maccabees. And there's something within the Jews of this day that tells them that in order for their theology to be fulfilled, they have to have sovereignty over particular geography. That's what the Romans don't get. I'm like, what? I don't understand. What's the big deal? You want to practice your God thing? So practice your God thing. Let us be in charge. No, no, no. It doesn't work that way. For us to do our God thing, we have to be in charge. Okay, so said the Romans, just like, you know, sacrifice to our emperor too, and then, then you can be in charge. Like, no, no. That's not how it works. We have to be in charge, and we get to make the rules. Now, on one hand, that sounds very childish when I presented that out of the way. On the other hand, it's a question that needs to be encountered. Again, read the papers. There's one element in the world system that seems to consistently pop up and say, you know, we're listening to different music. You know, it's a different story, in fact. So the whole world, or the whole Roman world, I don't know if it's enjoying Pax Romana, but has submitted to Roman rule, except for the Jews. And the Ketos War is labeled, at least in Cassius Dio, as the bloody culmination. But lest you think the Jews were going to be beaten so quickly, um, within another 20 less, tw uh, what's that? Do the math. 15. Look at that. Within 15 years, the Jews will rise again. So at this point, I know I'm speeding through this because I'm, I'm just trying to give you the context for the Mishnah. But stop me. First of all, for sure stop me for clarification. And if you didn't understand something I said, always stop me. So let's pause before I go on to the Bar Koch revolt because I know this is coming at you quickly. But we're laying down groundwork. So I would say that the only reason they objected to the taxation was that it led to attention of Jews. No, for sure not. I mean, there are the nationalist element, which is simply just don't tell me what to do. This is our land. There's a religious element, which would say this is actually an avera. It's a sin. We're supporting idolatry. Um, I'm sure there were other pieces. Um, I'm just presenting it to you as a refusal to, to do what the whole world is doing. And that's what I want you to appreciate. By the way, who else, by the way, who joins us in this? The Christians. 
And it's important to note that the Christians cause more problems for themselves than even the Jews on a cert- at a certain stage, because Judaism will become a recognized religion of the Roman Empire, which means that a Jew who is drafted into the legions or a Jew who serves in public office will be exempt from certain public um, idolatrous rites that were obligatory. You know, the legions would sacrifice to their, to their standards before battle. Really bad form if all the guys are there pouring out wine to the standard and you're in the back saying, no, no, I don't do that. Now, if you're a Jew, you can be protected. If you're a Christian, you know what they're going to do? Or make you sacrifice. One way or the other. You're either dead or you're in violation. But the Christians, that's why they were getting thrown to the lions. It wasn't just Domitian's cruelty, which it also was. It was because Christianity was not a recognized religion yet, and yet they were still in this obstinate religious stance of um, refusal to cooperate. So it wasn't just the Jews. Other questions or comments? Just yeah. a small point. In uh, the outline you had, you wrote, the emperor remo- removed Jews disgraced. Here you said lightning. So, yeah, you know, it's funny. Um, because, you know, well, it is, it is a re- cause it was never actually officially revoked. So removed is probably in- inaccurate. Okay. Other questions, comments? All right, stop me if you need. You can throw things. I'm not shy. Um, okay, so the, the third war, just trying to get things turned over on the right side. Ah, there we go. Um, too much information. Here we go, Bar Kokhba. Um, you know, you could say that the, the Bar Kokhba revolt, let's give it just the background. What happens is that um, Trajan dies. By the way, his attempt to conquer Parthia was a failure. And this is the high watermark of the Roman Empire. Right? From here on out, it's all downhill. Um, which plays this, also a significant role in how the Jews fit into this picture. Trajan dies. Uh, without getting into the details of Roman history, eventually the emperor becomes a general named Hadrian. Right? Hadrian begins, according to the accounts of our historians, as, um, as philo-Semitic. He's got a philosophical bent to him. He's a reader. He sees the appeal and power of Jewish culture, which, as I pointed out to this point, was, was achieving converts on a large scale. It's still at this point in the Roman Empire. And not just direct converts. There was a whole category of people who were known as the God-fearers, the Yireh Shemaim. They show up in the Gemara as well. Just picture people who want to hang out in Jewish culture and around the synagogue, but aren't willing to take that last step of circumcision in particular, which is a rather big ask um, in an era before you know, local anesthetic. Um, so he is aware of Jewish culture, and he comes according to, there's two versions of the story we'll talk about, maybe we'll talk about them uh, at the end, but he comes to Judea, and at that point, Jerusalem was a camp for the legions. I think it was the 12th legion, the 12th or the 10th. I can't remember off the top of my head which one was camp. But Jerusalem was an army camp. And, you know, the legions, like most armies, were not so concerned about aesthetics. And he was heartbroken that such a, uh, a wonderful location for a city, which had served as the seat of kings for centuries, was an army camp. So he decided he was going to rebuild the city. He would rename it Aelia Capitolina. Right? And, and in place of the temple, which, of course, at that point was the high point of, of the ancient city, he would replace it with a temple to Jupiter, because that was the chief Roman god in his days, right? <laughs> Sounds like a great idea if you're into urban renewal, but it means that you don't actually understand the Jews. Um, now, that's one version of the story, right? That's the story that the church historians tell. Eusebius, I'm, I'm sure I'm saying his name wrong, 
Um, I have a friend who's, a, who's a, a Catholic monk who periodically sends me emails like, it was a great podcast, but you should know it's pronounced like this. Oh. Um, so if you're listening, Eric, help me out. Um, the, so Eusebius records it that the, um, sorry, I want to say it in reverse. Cassius Deo says, Hadrian came, saw the beautiful city, wanted to rebuild, and the Jews revolted. Eusebius records it that the Jews revolted, and then afterwards, as a punishment, Hadrian put the idolatrous temple there. Notice these are, again, two historiographies. Why would the Christian historian say that an idolatrous temple was placed on the Temple Mount in the wake of the final revolt? It's consistent, right? It's the last stage. Don't you get it? Physical Israel is done. And your attempts to physically revolt against Rome are just another last gasp of your failed path of physical existence altogether. And here's the proof. What did it produce? An idolatrous temple on your physical temple mount. And that's it. You're over. That's the, that's the Christian narrative. The Roman narrative, which a lot of people believe is a little bit more genuine, was what I said. It was that Hadrian actually misread the sort of lay of the political land, but he thought he was doing a good thing. They rebuild the city. By the way, the Cardo, if you guys have been, you know, in, in the old city, is the main street of Ava Capitolina, of the Roman city that Adrian was the founder of, which lasted well beyond his era. So one way or another, whoever went chicken or egg, whether he built the city and that caused a revolt or the revolt happened and he built the city as a punishment, um, the Jews weren't having it. Right? And in approximately the year 132, a popular revolt erupted, a revolt which eventually took almost 10 times as many legions to suppress as the Great Revolt. So this was not a, a, a small flare-up. Right? Not only did it take that because of the sort of power that was brought to bear by the Jewish rebels, but because of the determinations of the Roma, Romans that this would be indeed the last round. Right? But it may have been that the... Um, that the Bar Kokhba revolt, as it became known, for reasons I'll make clear if you don't know, would have only just been another Quito's war, another fragment of historical interest to a few people, if it weren't for its spiritual leader. Who was the spiritual leader of this revolt? Rabbi Akiva. And now we're starting to get into the story of the Mishnah in a real way. I want you to keep that in mind as I tell you the following story, because Rabbi Akiva would become the bridge across which the oral Torah makes it to the Mishnah. Right? In the traditional narrative, it is Rabbi Akiva and his students who give the structure to the Mishnah, which was eventually codified by Rabbi Yehuda Nasi in Sipuri and Tiveri as well. Right? It's Rabbi Akiva who's able to take the three generations that lie between Yavne and Sipuri and take them from what are parallel lived traditions and make them into a codified law. What do I mean? Favorite question amongst my students, why can't I eat chicken parmesan according to the Torah? The Torah forbids me meat and milk. Chicken, you can't milk a chicken, don't bother trying, right? So why shouldn't they permit it? And the answer, one of the answers I always give them is, well, Rabbi Yossi HaGalili, who was a Tana, meaning one of the authors of the Mishnah, indeed ate chicken and milk. Now when you read that in the Mishnah, most students, I used to teach the laws of Kashrut for, for a number of years. So you, you, you read that in the Mishnah and you assume, well, he was just wrong. Right? It was an argument in the Beit Midrash. They were arguing about what the Torah says. Rabbi Yosef pops up and says, you can eat 
chicken parmesan. And everyone in the Beit Midrash says, no, you're wrong. And he, he, he you know, pipes down and they move on. Except you have to understand, the Gemara says explicitly, in the town of Rabbi Yosi Gali, they used to eat pheasant's head boiled in milk. Right? This was not an academic debate. These were parallel lived traditions. And it's very important to understand that, that these, these revolts are incredibly disruptive to any social fabric. So what the Jews of the Galilee were doing may not in any way have reflected what the Jews of Judea or the Jews of the northern Negev or the Jews of the coastal plain were doing in their daily life. If they wipe away all of our notions of communication, all of our notions of transportation, my great aunt, she should be healthy and well, grew up in a relatively wealthy um, area in the Carpathian Mountains. It's a small town called Kreshenev, not far from Sigit. If people are familiar with Sigit, it's a bigger place. She said it was eight miles away. And I asked her how often did she go, and she looked at me like... We, we, we didn't. It was eight, Michael, it was eight miles away. And that was in the early 20th century. <laughs> Mid. You know, so, so, so to understand that what you're looking at between Yavne and the ultimate codification of the Mishnah is multiple generations of parallel lived tradition. And Rabbi Akiva, in the midst of what becomes the great destruction, you think this was the great destruction. The rally is, is that the Romans the center out of Judaism, but they didn't destroy the circumference. There was still a vessel holding people together. And in an odd way, this Fiscus Judaicus knit together diaspora in the same way that the temple at its center had knit together. That was why I spent so much time on it. What's coming now, and even the Quito's War was like an upheaval, but it didn't break. What's going to happen now is that Hadrian is going to take apart the wall that holds us together. And then there will only be a commitment to Torah that can make you know that somebody else is a Jew. Within two generations, if you ask someone, where are you from, the answer Judea becomes inadmissible. It's gone. It doesn't exist anymore. So Rabbi Akiva meets someone named Shimon Bar Koziba, seems to be his original name. Shimon Bar Koziba. Koziba might be the place he was from. A lot of mystery, his uh, character shrouded mystery. So much so you should know that until Yigal Yadin, great general and archaeologist here, discovered the Bar Kokhba letters, which we actually now have in, in the Israel Museum, most historians thought it was a myth. Most historians actually did not believe Bar Kokhba existed. thought it was like a personification of some sort of revolutionary movement. But now we actually have letters written in his own hand. By the way, you know what the letters are asking for? Arbiminim for the four species for his army. He letters to his garrison at Engedi saying, send me Willow, Myrtle, Etra, and a lot. The army is very big. Yeah, it's amazing. I mean, you got to see this stuff. Um, the cave in which they were discovered is unimpressive. I took a group by once. Like, okay, this is dark and smelly. Let's leave. Um, but, the, but the letters. Okay, so, so Simon Barkosibo, when Rabbi Kiva meets him, Rabbi Kiva meets him, and he's entranced by his personality or his potential, whatever it is, and he declares to him, a star goes to a darach kochav miyakov. A darach kochav miyakov is a, is a, means that a star goes forth from Jacob, right? And he says, just as Koziba goes forth from Yaakov. He changed his name from Bar Koziba to Bar Kochba, the son of a star. Now, of course, who says those words, darach kochav miyakov? Bilam. They're, they're in the 24th chapter of, of Bamidbar. I highly encourage you, if you haven't done it, to take every word that Bilaam said very seriously. Because there are elements of the Jewish story 
that come out of his mouth that come from nowhere else. And by the way, the Gemara says that Moshe wrote his book and Parshat Bilam, which is a strange statement for the Gemara to make since isn't Parshat Bilam part of Moshe's book? I'll leave you to chew on that. But in, in sense of the significance, what is Rabbi Akiva doing? Why is he applying a line said by Bilam literally millennia earlier to, to some general he meets on the street? You know what we call this? Inspired exegesis. It's not prophecy, because he's not claiming to speak in the name of, or the voice of God. Bilaam spoke in the voice of God. What's Rabbi Akiva doing? He's applying it to history. This, if you're familiar with the Dead Sea Scrolls, which culturally the, the community that had uh, produced the Dead Sea Scrolls was more or less gone at this point, but their, but their impact on, on Judaism remains to this day in certain areas quite strong, and this one in particular. This is what's known as a pesher document. It's an it's a, it's a inspired interpretation. Oh, I know Bilaam said this, but he said it without knowing what it actually applied to. But this is what's known as apocalyptic thinking, right? Prophecy, on some level, is eternal, right? That's why we're still reading Isaiah today, even though the historical events through which Isaiah emerged are gone, right? But there's something eternal in the, the prophecy which is written down. Apocalypse is concerned with how divine will is going to play itself in history. And that's why it's also quite concerned with the eternality of the individual soul. Because history is made up of real people. What's Rabbi Akiva doing? He's applying the eternal to the specific and saying, you're the Messiah. Now, if you think that this is a strange act, anybody ever been to the Zagot Winery? Ever go up to the, the Binyamin, you know, so by the way, excellent wine, wonderful view. Anybody ever notice there's a small tile um, decoration on the front. It's a, it's a verse from Amos. What does it say? Anybody notice? It says you will plant vineyards and drink there and reap their fruit and press. I'm, I'm paraphrasing. I pull out Amos, Amos right now. And, but the key is, the end of the line is, and, and I will never uproot you from your land again. Now, if anyone's familiar with the community in Zagot, you know that this isn't just a fancy door decoration. What is it? Inspired exegesis. They're saying, yes, Amos said this 2,500, 3,000 years ago. And who is he talking about? Us. Now, that's a very powerful tool in the Jewish story. If you could make an honest play to say, here's God's word. I'm not, no, I'm not a prophet, but I can tell you what he meant. That's a tremendous leverage of history, unless you're wrong, <laughs> in which case it's explosive. So Rabbi Akiva applied that to Bakoziba. And you know, the Gemara in, um, that I'm looking at here in, in, in the Rishami and Tani, the response that he gets is, Rabbi Yochanan ben Torta says to him, Akiva, grass will grow from the sockets of your cheeks, and still the son of David will not have come. Now this Gemara was written well after the revolt was over. But, but what was he telling Rabbi Akiva? He's not the Mashiach, and you blew it by thinking he was. Right? This is one of the great questions, because what happens, in, in very short, they kick the Romans out. The first wave of the revolt is phenomenally successful, right? but, but Rome is not going down this time. As I said, they marshal literally 10 times as many legions as they had used for the Great Revolt, and it takes a little while to cross the Mediterranean, but they do indeed, and they burn as they come. They decide that there will not be two stones left standing and that they will salt the earth around Jerusalem as they had done to Carthage before, right? 
quickly the revolt moves underground, literally, right? If anyone's done the sort of tourist thing here in Israel and gone to the Bar Kokhba caves, right? Whole cities, the city of Baitar was moved underground, right? But that meant that when Baitar was broken in the year 135 and all of its inhabitants were slaughtered, that the Gemara reports that there was blood up to the knees of the horses of the Romans as they marched through and that it flowed down to the Mediterranean and made the water red for a kilometer out. He doesn't use the word kilometer. And, and whether you think that the, that's the Gemara's sort of literary penchant for exaggeration or not, again, it, it chose this image to tell you that when the Romans crushed this revolt, they crushed it absolutely. And therefore, the Bar Kokhba revolt really marks the end of the national vessel here in Judea. What did Hadrian do when he was finished? He took a playbook from the Greeks. He forbid all of the core practices of Judaism, right? Circumcision, study of Torah. I have the list here. I'm just looking for it. Here it is. Um, to fill in mezuzah. The, the stories in the Gemara, if you're like, familiar with the, the story of, um, of Kanfe Yonah, right? the story about the man who was, who was caught wearing tefillin, and he, he wrapped them up and hid in his hands, and when the Romans said, what do you have there? And he opened them up, and it was a, and it was a, 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 a dove, like, why are the Romans, or what's called, you know, Shanata, the, the Zaman Shmad, the time of destruction, why are the Romans killing Jews for wearing tefillin? Like, who really cares? The answer is here. Because the Romans finally understood that there was some link that they had missed all along between the Torah, the land, and the national consciousness of the Jews. And that if they wanted to rule the land, they had to get rid of the national consciousness of the Jews. And if they wanted to get rid of the national consciousness of the Jews, they had to get rid of the Torah. And so then he indeed went and did that. Not only that, but he went and realized that the rabbinic class needed to be systematically hunted down and killed, which is indeed what the Romans began to do. Right? Um, and we'll speak about the impact of that on the Mishnah either before the end of this class or the, by the beginning of the next. Um, oh, we're golden. So, so Hadrian pulls a playbook from the Greeks. In, again, understanding, I want you to understand that. that they, the Romans want to control the land. Let's just remember that. Romans are not interested in cultural oppression. They could care less. Pay your taxes, keep the laws, and you can do what you want in your home. But they understood in order to control the land, they had to erase the national conscience of the Judeans. And in order to erase the national conscience of the Judeans, you had to get rid of the Torah. Again, this deserves reflection in the world in which we live today. So that is indeed what he began to do, but of course it wasn't enough. So they also plowed over the city and either now according to the Christian narrative, built the Temple of Jupiter on the Temple Mount, or it was the beginning. And furthermore, in perhaps the single most effective move by any enemy of the Jewish people in all history, they wiped Judea off the map. You know, we use that phrase, we're going to wipe them off the map. But today it's, it's just a dead metaphor. I mean, it means nothing. All it means is what? I'm going to really, like, destroy you. But the reality is you can't do it because you always all have phones and, and there are globes in every classroom in the, in the, in the country. And, and that's it. But in the time of Rome... Who made the maps? It was only the empire. So therefore, when, when Hadrian declared that the province of Judea would no longer be Judea, but rather what? Palestina. Then that is indeed what it became. And within a generation, no one except the Jews had ever heard of Judea. And certainly, if you wanted to make an argument that a place like that existed, well, if you're an educated person, what's your proof going to be? You're going to reach for a map. And what are you going to find? It ain't there. It's Palestine. 
And that's what I meant when I said it was probably the single most effective blow ever given to the Jewish people by one of its enemies. Why did he choose Palestine? Right. He was reaching back to the, what he perceived to be the pre-Jewish era that related to the geography. And so it would remain on maps right up until the birth of the modern state of Israel. That's why it was the Palestine Mandate. That's why I have friends whose parents, maybe some of you guys out here, have a Palestinian passport as Jews. Right? Language is never neutral. So, yeah. I think it's like, so as the question revolves into the day after, other Jews in the Roman Empire, are they also being persecuted in terms of religious doctrine? So that's solely... Excellent, 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 excellent question. As far as we can tell, unlike Vespasian, who, as I pointed out, placed this tax, this Jewish shame tax, on all of the Jews of the empire, thus creating you know, a collective responsibility, Hadrian focused on the persecutions within Judea. Because he realized, like I said, that nexus. He didn't care if the Jews want to practice their religion in Rome, and at this point there was a thriving Jewish community in Rome. Like, what do I care? Great. On the contrary, if he was smart, and we, don't, and we assume he was, and if he, was, if he, was, if he thought about it hard enough, it actually was to his in, in his interest a good, thriving diaspora alternative means that when things are hard here, what are people going to do? Mm-hmm. Right? That phrase, Ainli Eretacheret, which gets a lot less attention in Israeli um, discourse today than it used to, is a very important, that means I have no other home, if I have no other land, so a very important driver for the last 70 years of Israeli history. And so in this case, I think your observation is an important one. So as far as, as, far as no, not. Um, so, so what happens to Rabbi Akiva? Karbachochva dies actually before Beitar falls, according to the Gemara. There's a whole story there. We're not going into it. Beitar is crushed. We'll get to what happens to the dead there. Well, we'll actually, no, we'll go there first, and then we'll talk about Rabbi Akiva. So, so the emperor declares that after the fall of Beitar, that it's forbidden to bury the dead. It's like the last insult, so to speak. And according to which version of the Gemara you read, either for a year or perhaps even three years, the dead of Beitar lay unburied. Now, aside from the horror of such a thing, why does that matter? Remember, this is the rabbinic narrative. And, and I should say now that I don't believe the, the rabbis were interested in the Western notion of history at all. Right? They were masters of the literary face of truth much more so than the literal face of truth, right? So why would it be that the rabbis would describe the situation as the dead unburied? So, so it's, a, it's sacrilege, number one, for sure. It's, it is a deep insult. Why else? What, is it, what happens when you can't bury the dead? What? Disease. Rot. Think like a rabbi. Nobody can inherit. Women can't remarry. Right? You're stuck. The crux of your society is stuck. Because if you can't identify who's dead and who's alive, children can't claim the inheritance of their fathers. So you'd have to, that's why it was so evil to leave the bodies to rot. Why? Because even when the permission was given, you have a society you've left frozen in time. Right? It's a powerful blow. And what happens people are familiar with the story in the Gemara? A miracle. Miracle is twofold. First of all, eventually the Romans relent 
and allow them to bury. And what's the other half of the miracle? The bodies were intact. They were able to identify people when they buried them. And, says the Gemara, it was in this era that the rabbis instituted the blessing, Hatov Umetiv. God is good and does good. Realize, in rabbinic theology, that's a chiddish. That's a big innovation. The benevolent God does not exist in the Bible. You can try to read him in, but it's a big stretch. The idea that God is all-powerful and all-good does not fit the simple reading of the biblical narrative. We can have a commitment to the truth, and I do, but realize that commitment is not rooted in a simple reading of the Bible. That commitment is rooted in the way the sages chose to read it, and that, in their minds, began at Betar, when this miracle occurred that the bodies were buried intact. What? By the way, we say this blessing every time. It's in the structure of the, of the after the grace, after the meals. Right? It's worked its way into its liturgy, in, liturgy in, in a number of places. Right? This is the turning point where the rabbis insisted God is good and does good. Right? Who was, of course, the famous one who said, called the Avid Rahmana, the Tava Avid? Everything which God does, God does for the good. I'll give you one guess. Rabbi Akiva. Hmm. Rabbi Akiva thought God is good and does good. Everything God does is good. Why does Rabbi Akiva die, by the way? Before we get to the conclusion of, conclusion of the death of Betar. What? No, no, actually he's tied to a post and they rake his flesh off with, with, uh, with, iron, with iron combs. Okay, yeah. In public, as his students watch. And say to him, Ad Khan, Rabbeinu, even now you're going to accept the yoke of heaven? And what does he say? I've been waiting for this moment my whole life. That's Rabbi Tarfin. That's he's the one who was burned alive with the Torah. We would talk about what it was he wanted to show, but for now I just want you to appreciate that it's a very odd assertion. Remember, it's the rabbi's telling all these stories. They're telling all these stories. Remember, and and it matters to me not at all whether you believe they're literally true or you think it's just a, a, a genre of fiction. Irrelevant. You still have to answer the question: Who would tell all those same stories about one person, and why would the punchline be God is good and does good? Now, let's go back to Betar for a second and, and the dead lying in the field stuck. Because this is a very important element of Jewish history. Yeah? According to Gemara, it was a three-year. It could have been one year or three-year. But yeah, it's a, it's a miracle. I mean, you don't leave bodies out in the field in, in you know, the foothills of Judea for three years and find them identifiable. Um, so what would happen to a people that gets stuck in the trauma of its history. The great danger of Jewish history is always getting stuck in the past. Right? People, there may be people here who are, who are therapists or maybe some of us have experienced trauma ourselves and done work around our trauma. Right? But the hallmark of trauma is that it has a, um, a magnetic, almost a sort of a, a vortex effect. You know what I mean? Most of us live life moving forward. We have memory of what was, and we're always schlepping our memory along with us and some sense of where we're trying to get to. The hallmark of trauma is I can't actually get away from something which is actually chronologically moving in the past. It could be something as morally neutral as a car accident. We'll stay there because trauma comes in lots of forms. But it's just like somehow every time I go near a bus, it's like, it's like it happened today. Right? It's as real to me now as it was, and that is the hallmark of trauma. I do a lot of work with people on this. 
right? Is as real to me now as it was then, and therefore what? I cannot move forward. And the great grace that I believe that the sages, and this is why they, they chose that blessing to associate with Beitar, was that the ability to actually move on. And, and, and that's why they said to Rabbi Akiva, grass will grow from the sockets of your cheeks before the Messiah comes. Let it go. You tried and you failed. And the question of which is the hardest to get over, the trauma of the destruction or the failure, is a very big important. That's where I want to come to with Rabbi Akiva and, and what it was he did in his death. There was a hand. I saw a hand. Listen, I'm a Jew. I don't blame anybody for having trouble getting over their history. And by the way, the difference between 48 and that is the war's not over. Right. I mean, that's not getting over. This is just tactical maneuvering. Got it. Right? We as a people, I really encourage us not to point fingers at anybody in their ability not to get over things. <laughs> um, nevertheless, the assertion that God is good and does good is bound up in the rabbinic mind with that grace that, that properly done, consciousness can be cultivated. And this is, you should understand, the great art form of the sages. And it will work its way into the Mishnah, where you can transform suffering into a source of positive identity. Right? Not in the Christian sense of an ennobling of suffering itself. Right? The passion of Jesus of Nazareth becomes a very important image and practice even in certain brands of Christianity. It's not what I'm speaking about, although that has its place in certain subsets of Judaism. What I'm speaking about is the sense of, all right, I have overcome and survived. I have gained strength. I have broken and healed. All the things which are the hallmarks, like, you know, I, to me it's a, it's a bit of a joke, but, but it's always worth sharing. The original Jewish trauma, of course, is slavery in Egypt. We talk about it all the time. Every time we make Kiddush, right, it comes up in, it, twice a day around the Kriyat Shema. You know and, and my kids on Seder night love to dance around singing, right, my kids kid sing. Pharaoh's out in his pajamas looking for Moses and Aaron to get away. Well, how could they be singing about such a horrible... Could you imagine someone saying that about Auschwitz? I don't think so. How about a thousand years from now? Mm. You better hope so. Mm. Or we'll be stuck. Yeah, it's hard to imagine, isn't it? But that's the power of the sages. They were able to transform because God is good and does good. That was their assertion. Can you imagine making that assertion in the face of three years of death? No, God is good and does good. And to us, 1,800 years later, yeah, sure. But like you pointed out, it's not so long since 1948 or 1945, for that matter, or 1942. It's not long enough, but don't forget that that doesn't mean that the task isn't there. And so Rebbe Kiva dies literally on the stake cleaving to God. His commitment to God is absolute. What was he thinking? Because, by the way, in the rabbinic mind, the Bar Kofa goes down as the, as the ultimate disaster. And that is the, the frame that Bar Kofa is given for the next, like I said, 1,700 years. Who revives Bar Kofa as a Jewish hero? Anybody know? Yeah, Max Nordau in specific. The, the Zionists, but Max Nordau in specific. Why? Because Max Nordau was the, was the progenitor of muscular Zionism. He was the one who gave a philosophical basis for the militancy, which became dominant within the early Zionist movement. Right? But before him, Bar Kochba was like, Tuh. he was a heretic, 
The story in the Gemara is that he died because he didn't trust the sages. It was koch It was my hand and the strength of my arm that did this might. He forgot God. Disaster. Except he wasn't alone. Who called him Bar Kochba? Rabbi Kiva. Rabbi Kiva is the, is the master of the Mishnah. How do these two things work together? I'll tell you, by the way, in Jewish history, the way they work together is, is compartmentalization. Right? People, religious Jews didn't celebrate Bar Kochba, but they celebrated Rabbi Kiva. And if you ask the average person how they worked those two out, they'd ask you what you're talking about. But you know, actually, who answered that question? The Rambam. If you look in the end of the Mishnah Torah, the last book of the Mishnah Torah is called Malachim, which is in Shoftim, but Malachim of the Milchamotayim, one of the kings in their wars. Um, and the last two prakim, two or three, I think it's just two, um, are informally known as um, Hilchot Mashiach, Laws of Messiah, where the Rabbim actually lays out his whole perspective on the Messiah. Fascinating. If you haven't looked at them, highly worthwhile reading. Um, and there he says, indirectly, actually no, directly he mentions Rabbi Kiva. What was Rabbi Kiva thinking? I mean, Bakochba was the Messiah? Like, like he, he, he brought down ruin on Am Yisrael. Shabbat says, well, anybody who fights the battles of the war of the Lord returns the land of Israel to the sovereignty of the Jews, rebuilds the temple, which it seems that Bar Kochba at the very least restarted the service on the, on the altar. He may not have actually rebuilt the Heichal, right? And returns the Torah to widespread practice through coercion, of course. Right? Has what he calls Chezkat HaMashiach. He's got the, the well, kind of Chazaka. He has the, the, the supposition, not supposition is a better word for that. It, well, just the presumption of the Messiah. And how will we know whether he is or not? Whether he succeeds or not. Whether he succeeds or not. That would have been one very natural answer. And it seems that many of his companions amongst the sages indeed had that reaction. But what was Rabbi Akiva thinking? Remember, he's not just some guy. He's not even just some sage. We're almost at the end of this class, but when we pick up next week, we're going to talk about the fact that he is the bridge across which the oral law passes. Without Rabbi Akiva, that's it. The chain of tradition is gone. Right? In order to understand him, we have to go back to Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai and the original decision to save the sages at Yavne. Sorry, I keep mispronouncing things. If you look at the Gemara in... in um, in Gittin, thank you, right, that, 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 that tells that story about Rabbi Yochanan, the Gemara, of course, has a narrative voice, has multiple narrative voices, right? And after Rabbi Yochanan asks for his three wishes from the Emperor Vespasian, which is literally what they are, right? So the Gemara pipes up and says a very obvious question. What should Rabbi Yochanan have asked the Emperor when the Emperor says, I'll give you whatever you want? Go away, go away, right? And so the Gemara pipes up and says... What's he thinking? I mean, it's not in those nice terms, but, right? And, and you know whose voice it is? It's Rabbi Akiva. It says Rabbi Yosef, um, some say it was Rabbi Akiva who said, right? I forget the Pasuk he quotes. I, forgive me, I don't have the text in front of me. But basically, Rabbi Yochanan blew it in that moment. Here's Rabbi Akiva's voice. Rabbi Yochanan, what were you thinking? You blew it. What's the Gemara's answer? Is that he was trying to save a little bit. Right, because he understood there are, there are historical moments in which that's it. Sometimes the situation is so broken, you can't save it. But you know what? Without Rabbi Akiva, you might think that Rabbi Yochanan's way was the only way. 
that listen, what it is to be the Jews is, we're just going to save a little bit. Jew <laughs> Jewish survival, continuity, that's what we're about. Which is another way of saying, like, it's just unfeasible. Let me get what I can actually get. Pragmatism. So very, very, and looks, if he hadn't done it, would we be having this conversation now? The question is, if Rabbi Akiva hadn't done it, would we have this conversation now? Because you know what Rabbi Akiva is? Rabbi Akiva is the other side of the story, is that the Jews are not meant to save a little bit. Not in Rabbi Akiva's eyes. That the Jews are a people not of continuity or survival, but of mission and redemption. And you know what? If that's the case, sometimes you also have to go for broke. Right? They're saving a little bit, and that takes a personal weighing of a historical circumstance and, and moment of mission, etc. And then there's the flip side, which is sometimes you gotta go for broke. And what happens when you go for broke and fail? You're, yeah, it's, it's, it's spectacular. And yet, where are we now? And, and everybody agrees that if Rabbi Yochanan hadn't made his decision, we couldn't have this conversation now. But there's not such a widespread agreement on Rabbi Akiva. It's hard to know. Except he did make his decision, and we are having this conversation. So the one thing we can say is that he didn't cut it off. Right? Might have had a thousand years ago. We might be very different people. It might have been the wrong time. Might have been the right time. Second guessing history, as you can probably sense, is not my favorite game. And nevertheless, I want you to appreciate that tension because once again, it plays a very important question in many of the modern issues facing the Jewish people today. Right? Is the goal save a little, survive, continuity, or is the goal? No, we have a mission. Or whatever. No, I'm not. I'm not prejudicing what the mission is. I would leave it to you all to decide, and please don't, and I understand how that would be a very easy conclusion to draw of what I'm saying, and I have my own opinions on these things, which I'm happy to share outside of class, but my point is not that. I don't really care what you think the mission is. I want, I, whatever you think the mission is, even if I deeply disagree with it, that's great. Just, just know that sometimes it's time to go for the mission. And the question is just as difficult as the question that Rabbi Yochanan had to answer. And so Rabbi Akiva dies with absolute faith that there's only one purpose. What's the last word that leaves his mouth? Echad. Right? He's, as you said, he sanctifies the name of heaven. He's mekabel ol malchut shemaim. He accepts the yoke of heaven. Right? Because that's what he did throughout. And, and one primary expression of that was going for broke. Because he didn't believe that it was about him or about Bar Kokhba. He, was a, he believed it was about God who spoke to Bilaam 3,000 years ago and that moment coming to fruition in his day. And he was wrong. But he only knew that afterwards. So this is the context into which, that's empty, don't worry, uh, into which the Mishnah is born. As I've said many times, and we're going to pick up with the actual, like, what is the Mishnah um, next time. But I've, I've, I've said many times that Rabbi Akiva, in, in the eyes of the Gemara as well, actually, in, in the eyes of um, many of the academics who study the question of the origins of the Mishnah, right, created the structure of the Mishnah, which he handed on to, to Rabbeinu HaKadosh, to Rabbi Yudah Nasi, right? And we'll speak next year about the nature of orality, of what, what it means to have a, a truly oral culture as opposed to textuality and, and a written culture. But for now, I'll leave you with this image. It's a general principle in the, the traditional approach to Jewish history that God never leaves his people without a leader. So the devastation that followed in the wake of the Bar Kokhba revolt, leaving aside the assertion that God is good and does good, <laughs> Was, was complete, right? Nevertheless, 
The Gemara says that on the day that Rabbi Akiva died, Rabbi Yehuda Nasi was born. Rabbi Gamliel II was Rabbi Yehuda Nasi's father. Right? And that he was born on the day which Rabbi Akiva died. But you know what that meant? That meant his breed was a very big problem. Why? Because it had been forbidden by the Romans. Right? So, so the story is brought down actually by the, by the Totsvist that, that, um, that Rabbi Gamliel was the head of the Sanhedrin, which even though it didn't have its full capacity as it had had when the temple stood, was still an important political body amongst the Jews. And so, so he was being watched quite closely once his, his wife gave birth, right? But he had to go to the Roman legate in Syria. And so he went together with his wife. And the story is that while he was in speaking to the Roman legate, his wife was like out in the, I don't know, the waiting room. And there was another Roman woman there who also happened to have a baby, right? Um, new, newly born, right? And, and she saw that this Jewish woman was nervous. She starts asking why he's so nervous. Well, I'm about to go in there and they're going to, Asked me to take the diaper off the baby and, and you know, circumcision. She said, don't worry. Give me your son, and I'll sit here and nurse him, and you can take my son in and show him to this legate. And so this is indeed what they do. They switch the baby, right? And, and, and Rabbi Yunasi's mother comes in and shows this Roman baby to the, to the legate, and he says, oh, well, very nice. Thank you. You can take him back. And, and goes back and switches. And according to the tradition of the Tosavists, which... They're deriving from the Gemara. One baby is Rabbi Yudah Nasi, who will become the redactor of the Mishnah. And Hanasi means the prince, and we'll speak about why it is that he received that title next week. Who's the other baby? Antoninus the emperor. Right? There's a new era that's going to be born with the birth of the Mishnah, and it'll be a new era of Roman-Jewish relations, which will completely shift the sense which was left by the three wars between the Jews and the Romans, but that's a story for next week, and I will leave you now with that. This is a production of the Pardes Institute of Jewish Studies. For more original Torah content, visit almad.pardes.org.